As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that as we come to your word that uh, it will resound in our ears and our minds and our hearts that this is the very word of God. I pray that as we listen to it read that we'll know it is God speaking and thus it will have its work in us. God, you promise that you, your word will not return to you void that is without accomplishing your purpose. We pray that your purpose this morning is to bring grace to us and your wisdom. So help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to James in the New Testament. James in the New Testament. Um, a little book, uh, chapter 1, I want to uh, read uh, the first 18 verses. We won't do all that, but the first 18 verses. <clears throat> Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want, if God will help me, to take up really today just these verses 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That is, we're to pray for wisdom in faith. So that we won't be as those who are tossed like a wave is blown around, tossed by the wind, but rather will remain stable, that is steadfast in all the things that matter, steadfast 
in faith. So, so that's what we're about today. This would be very, very important for the people to whom James writes. Remember, they were refugees. There had been uh, persecution in Jerusalem. So these Jewish believers fled that persecution. And they ended up all over the place. So they would be, many of them, homeless, um, friendless, uh, jobless, uh, lonely. Perhaps their physical person would be in some degree of danger there. So uh, you know what it looks like, at least. We see it on television and read about these things. What it means to be a refugee. These people were that. And that was the trial that they were now facing. And so... Uh, they would need, as we would need in this situation, and as we do need, the wisdom of God. How it is that we endure through the midst of, of this, these kinds of trials and these kinds of difficulties. We could, I could list for you all of the trials, all the difficulties that we face. We're not refugees, but we face a variety of trials. James talks about various kinds of trials that are, are true to the human condition. Some are internal. Some come because of our temperament or our personality or some of the fears and the insecurities and all of that we battle with all the time. Those trials that seem then to spark and trigger those responses in us. And then the, the things that we meet, just the external kinds of difficulties in life, whether it be illness or unemployment or, 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 or political instability or war or injustice or abuse or whatever it is that we may face in life. You know yours. You can list them, I trust. Engage right now in, in those. What are the trials? Well, when you ask the question, huh, my life will be better when? What are the things that need to go for your life to be better or to come for your life? That's one way to identify the trials that we're going through at the moment. But you probably don't even need that, you know. The difficulties, the trials that you face in life. And these aren't just simply trials that come and, and make life difficult for us, but they also try our faith. Wouldn't you think that the people in James' day, as he writes to them, wouldn't you think that they would be thinking what we would be thinking? What's up with this? The Messiah has come. We were promised when the Messiah came, there would be peace. All I see is hostility. I've been run out of my own country by my own countrymen. And, and they said the Messiah was the being priest. I believe in this Messiah. I've embraced this Messiah. I've identified with this Messiah. I've cast, cast my whole lot with him. And, and look at what is happening. I've lost everything. And here I am. And yet he was supposed to be the savior, the king, the one to bring peace. Why is this the case? That's what happens, doesn't it? When our faith is tried like that. I suspect you've experienced that in various ways. If you haven't, you will. I mean, it's the kind of the question, the ages. I mean, uh, we, we, we live in a world where there's evil, and yet we think about God, and he's revealed to us as, as, as omniscient, all-wise, omnibenevolent, all-good, uh, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful. And we think, well, if that's the case... If he knows what's best, you see, and he is perfectly good, there's no evil in him, and he's powerful, why then is there evil? Why does this continue like this? It's, that's the question. And, and as the Bible lays this out for us, many religions and philosophies, everybody has to tackle this in some way, shape, or form. But it's interesting, as we read through the scripture from Genesis on, what we find is simply that revelation of God. 
that he is all wise, is perfectly good, that he's all powerful, that he's the creator, we're the creature, that because of who he is, he ordains all things that come to pass. Yet, as our confession says, he's not the author of evil. And it leaves it like that in the scripture. That's the way that we, God is revealed and life is revealed to us. And we're given throughout the scripture then how we're to live. In fact, there's certain books in the Old Testament that we see that struggle up close and personal. They're called the books of wisdom. We, we read through Job, for instance, and we see him struggle with that various, that question. What about faith in God? What does that really mean in the midst of suffering that I'm experiencing? And we read through Psalms and, and we have the psalmist pray and pour out their hearts and sing songs of praise on the one hand and yet pour out their hearts on another. God, what's going on here? Where are you in the midst of this? And we, we struggle with them and it's an inspired struggle. It's a good struggle. It gives us words for our own struggle in the midst of all of this. And then we read through the Proverbs and, and we get this wisdom from these proverbial sayings about how life is and how life is to be lived and what we're to avoid and what we're to seek and all of that to be able to live in the world in which we find ourselves under this great and good and sovereign God and yet we're there is evil. And then Ecclesiastes comes and he, he writes to us and he says, well, what's life really all about? Well, it's It's vanity. I mean, look at what really happens. We live and we were born and we live and then we die. And that's, if that's it, if that's all there is to it, then it's, it's vanity. But God, he says. Now, scholars have suggested then that James is the New Testament equivalent of that kind of wisdom literature. That what we read in the book of James is, is how to be wise. How to live out. Now it's true of all the scripture obviously. And all of the New Testament especially. But, but James has this, this sort of bent on wise living. What does it mean to live wisely? And you might remember uh, uh, that uh, last week we talked about wisdom. We mentioned that, that wisdom, a very short definition of wisdom, is knowing the best end and the best means to get there. The wise person knows what it's like. To know, knows what it is to, 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 to shoot for the best goal, what the best goal is, what successful living would be, if you will, and the best means to get there. And so we see that, that wisdom has this huge moral component. What is best? What is good? What is right? And so the, the ones whom we go when we think of needing to know what is best and what is good is what is right is to go to God. Because he's the one who really knows good and he's the one who really knows what's evil. And so we go to him. We don't try to define that ourselves, but we go to him and, and, and seek from him that which is good. What's really the best end in all of this? And how do we get there? Now, as we said, when we seek wisdom from God, we're not, we shouldn't be anyway, asking him for all of the details. We're not asking him to take us into the control room of heaven and see why this happened and why that happened and how long this is going to go and how long that or why was there this and why was there that? Why do people seem to suffer more than other people seem to suffer, right? We, we don't know all of that. It's fascinating, as you know, that when you read the book of Job, Job didn't know, well, we know, that all of this had been laid out by God, his experience, because of an interaction that he had with Satan. And, and all of that being set up. Job didn't know that. He just found himself in extreme trial and extreme suffering. And his friends came to him and they said, well, it's because you, you know, you're a sinner. And he began to think, well, if, 
if, if this, this is because I'm a sinner, then why aren't you suffering too? Right? I mean, that doesn't, that's, that's not the answer. And you know that God didn't really ever give him the answer as to why. God simply revealed himself to Job. This is who I am. And Job repented and worshipped. Uh, that's wisdom. Repenting and worshipping. <laughs> Trusting, you know, in the Lord. When Jesus' disciples came across a man who had been born blind, they said to Jesus, in essence, so why? Why is this man blind? Who sinned, he or his parents? Jesus said, neither. Well, other than they all sinned. This is for the glory of God. God has a, a purpose. He had a plan in this. And you'll see it. But, but he had a plan in all of this, you see. That's the sense of it. In fact, we read from uh, Moses this verse in Deuteronomy in chapter 29, verse 29. Quite easy to remember. 29, 29. But after laying out God's plan for Israel and all that, he says now, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He said, he said there are secret things that belong to God. Now, we mustn't think that those are secret because God doesn't want us to find them out. It's that we simply can't find them out because he's God. There's, there's things that are true of God. I hope, I hope this doesn't offend you. There are things that are true of God that he knows that we just simply will never know because we're the creature and he's the creator. There's a qualitative difference between the two of us. There are things that he'll know that we simply, he could explain them to us. But it's like explaining things to your dog. There are certain things they can understand, but a lot of it is just blah, 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 blah. Right? And so if God explained these things to us, It's like my son-in-law, who's a nuclear engineer, explaining to me what he does. I just go, huh, right? Good for you, buddy. Uh, but but it's sort of, you know, with God, there are secret things. And if we're not asking those kinds of questions, or if we do, we simply won't get the answer. But there's things that he's revealed to us. And it's like we mentioned last week, I, I gave you that quote from uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer that uh, about wisdom and he said it isn't like going into the control room of the train station the wisdom we get from god is more like learning how to drive a car we we don't know why that van is parked there we don't know why the road curves that way but he teaches us how to navigate wisdom is how to navigate around that van that's parked there how to navigate that that curvy road that's wisdom we may never know why the road curves that way or why the van was parked that way. we don't need to know that But what we need to know is how to navigate. That's the wisdom of God. He tells us, how do we navigate in the midst of these trials that we meet and that we come to? That's the wisdom that God gives. That's the wisdom we ask of him. Now, what we'll find as we read through this letter is, is, is James laying out for us wisdom. How it is that we're supposed to live. Not simply what we're supposed to know. But how it is that we're supposed to live, to live, if you, if you will, wisely. 
to live wisely. And so as we see here, he begins by giving us a couple of bits of wisdom, of, 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 of wise sayings, if you will, about trials. And the first thing he tells us, again by way of review, the first thing he tells us is the purpose for which these trials come to us, the purpose for which we meet them, God's intention for them. He says, you need to know this. This may not be apparent, especially in the midst of a trial, but, but the, the purpose of the difficulties through which we go is to mature us, to grow us up as believers in Jesus so that we'll be stable, so that we'll be firm, so that we'll be steadfast, so that we can really live. If there's real life in knowing God, he says, this is one of the means through which you really come to know me through these trials. So my intention this purpose. So as we, as we go through difficulties, what should be going through our mind is the wisdom of God. Oh, this trial exists. I have met it so that I'll grow up and mature in my faith. Now, that has to be important to us. If it's not, then the trial is just a drudgery. The purpose really isn't all that exciting to us. But if we really get our minds wrapped around it, that, that I'm going to grow up here, and therefore I will be strong and secure and, and, and stable in my life, and that's a good thing. In, in fact, we should value that so much, that if I could steal some words from the Apostle Paul, uh, this trial is nothing compared to what it will produce. It will produce something, this maturity, that's so valuable that what I have to tell myself through the midst of going through a trial is that at the end of the day, at the end of the trial, I'll look back and say, it was worth it. No matter what it is. Now I know, believe me, I know, that some trials are devastating. And I still make that statement. Because I think that's what James is telling us. That's the wisdom of God. It says the only way for this maturity to happen is to go through these trials. Because these trials test our faith. They purify our faith. So many times folks come to me in the midst of trials. And I felt this too. And you think that trial has has destroyed my faith. I don't have any faith left at all. And my response to that, both by experience and by scripture is to say, oh, yes, you do. What is left is real faith. What you lost was what wasn't faith. What was burned out, what was purified by this trial was all the stuff that you thought gave you security and gave you life, and you realize now it doesn't. And so you're left, what you're left with is real faith. And all the stuff that was destroying that real faith is gone now. It's been purified you may feel like it's a little bit. Remember Jesus. It's just mustard seed-ish. We're not talking big quantities here. That's not the point. You have it. And it's pure. It's sincere. Everything else gets taken away in the midst of these trials. So that we grow up in maturity. And we may feel devastated in various ways. But the truth of the matter is our faith is more pure than it's ever been. Because now we're trusting not in all the stuff that got taken away, but we're trusting in God and him alone. And he's put us in that place, you see, through the midst of the trial. And it may be hard and it may be difficult and all of that. But he says, because you know the purpose, and because I've shared with you at least a bit of the means, this trial, 
to test your faith and to prove it and to purify it. Now, even in the midst of the trial, chalk this up to joy. See it like that. Import some of the joy that will come when you mature, when you grow up, when you're not tossed around anymore, when you're stable. That when that happens, just think that through and say, I'm going to be joyful there. Well, just grab a hold of a bit of it now and live by faith in the midst of that joy now. That's the wisdom of God, you see. And then he says, listen, in the midst of this trial, you're going to need wisdom. You're going to need to know how to navigate this, 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 this trial. How to get through it. So how do you do that? Well, you ask God. Duh. Right? You ask the one who knows good and evil. You ask the one who is wise. And, and so he says, and, and I'll tell you this about God. He's generous. He's generous. And the word generous, as I said last week, means he's single. That is, he has one intent. His intent is, isn't to criticize you. It gives without reproach. It isn't to turn away from you. It isn't to make you sin. It isn't to make this more difficult for you. He wants to give you real wisdom. That's his intent. So I want to give you this wisdom so you can navigate this trial. That's his intent. And so he gives generously. Ask me, he says. And I'll give you this. But then he goes on. And he says, but. And I know what you're thinking. I knew there was a catch. I knew there was something here that rats. This all sounded way too good. So notice the but in verse 6. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, that's the exact opposite of the maturity that we're looking for. The maturity that we're looking for is this solidness, this perfection, this completeness, right? This unwaveringness, this steadfastness. And he says, if you doubt, you'll never, ever, ever get the benefit of the trial. You'll always be like one tossed round. So, so keep that in mind. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now notice what he says. He says that person will never receive this wisdom. A person who doubts, this person who is in fact uh, double-minded, he'll never really receive it. What's he saying? What's James saying in the midst of... Of this, Well, I don't believe there's a catch at all. How could it be otherwise? See, faith isn't the currency that we use to buy things from God. It isn't like there's a prayer store in heaven and various things have price tags and the price is faith. So with this much faith, you get a job. With this much faith, you get a really good job, right? With this much faith, you get a spouse. This much faith, you get a really... No, I shouldn't say that. With, with this much faith, uh, if you have this much faith, you get healing, right? Wow. You get this much faith, you can see into the future. I mean, there isn't a store in heaven where, where if you get... It's not, it's not like that at all. Faith means you come to God believing that he is God. You see, when we ask for wisdom, it seems to me that when we come to God, we're asking him... For, 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 uh, like this, we're saying, God, I believe that you're wise. And I believe that you give wisdom. 
And I believe that your wisdom is really wisdom. Meaning, I believe it's really good. I believe it's exactly what I need. I believe, God, that if I knew had your wisdom about my trial. In fact, if I had the wisdom you want to give me, not the secret things, but the revealed things, the things that I can understand, the things that I can grab hold of and apply in the context of my own life, I believe that that will be for my good and that will be the only thing for my good. If I follow my wisdom, I'll die. And then, I believe asking in faith means, I believe that your wisdom is good and it's what I need, so I will take it and I'll apply it in the context of my life and live it out. That's what it really means to believe. You see, if you're double-minded, if you put it this way, if you doubt, it means that I, I don't know if that's really true or not. I don't know if God really is wise, and if He is wise, I don't know if He really gives it. And if He really gives it, I don't know if that's the wisdom that I really need. I'm afraid that His wisdom might not be what I want to do. Won't give me what I really want. That's doubting. That's being double-minded, or as some translations have it, double-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, double-souled. Actually, it could be S-O-L-D as well. You're trying to buy two things. Uh, both things, you're double-souled. Uh, and both look right, what the world is offering and what God is offering. I, I can't decide which, and so you can see the tossing and turning. I don't know if I should follow God's wisdom or this wisdom over here. And remember, they're diametrically opposed. We read last Sunday from James chapter 3 about the wisdom of the world that it's, it, it, it tells you to be, to be jealous and to, to have selfish ambition and go after what it is that you want on your own, uh, what makes sense to you. But, 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 but God's wisdom is very different from that. It's pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and so forth. It, it's... it's it's a other-centered wisdom. It's a how do I bless others? How do I see your needs even above my own, even in the midst of my trial? So it's a very different kind of wisdom. So you may not want that, God's wisdom. And that makes you double-minded. And so it isn't so much that God isn't giving. It's, it's so much that you're not receiving. He says that person will never receive it. That person will never take God's wisdom. You see... When you go to your doctor, when I go to my doctor, I have to have a certain amount of faith in my doctor. When I go to my doctor, if I'm sick, I go to my doctor, I'm thinking, he knows how to diagnose what's wrong with me, and he will know what I should do in order to get better. If I don't believe that, I'll never receive from him. I mean, he often tells me things like, you should lose a little weight. And I go, no. Right? Somehow I don't believe that's really true. You know, Bill, you should eat less chocolate. How do you know that? I don't believe that. And so, you know, we, 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 there are things we're just not going to receive, right? It might be wisdom, but if we're not trusting, it's the same as kids go to parents. If they don't trust, they won't receive. Or players to coaches, if they don't trust, they won't receive. Or employees to their boss. If they don't trust, they won't receive. And it's the same thing with God. If we don't trust him, it just makes sense. Of course we won't receive the wisdom that he gives. We're double-minded. We listen to that wisdom and we think, nah, I, I don't think that's going to make me happy. I don't think that's what's really going to satisfy me. 
In the midst of a trial, he says, be patient. No. I don't... That doesn't sound wise to me. I should get on with it. Right? Be reasonable. Be gentle. Be kind. No, I want things. In fact, I think James lays this out, and we'll get to this in more detail in a month or two, probably, in James chapter 4, maybe 6. James chapter 4. Right after he talks about the wisdom of God, he writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Later, he calls them double-minded. Why, you see? Well, because... And again, I feel so, you know, I have compassion for these refugees. They need things. And their option is to trust God and to live out the godliness to which he calls them even in the midst of these trials. I'm compassionate for us. We need things. We want things. And yet the wisdom of God is to trust him and to be pure in our faith and peaceable to others and gentle, humble in the midst of our relationships to others, open to reason, full of mercy, be merciful even in the midst of our own trials and full of good fruits, that is, doing that which is good. Um, and that doesn't seem like the wisdom I want. I want God to, to get stuff for me. I want him to make me look good in the eyes of others. I want him to make me prosperous and secure in the things that I have. That's not his wisdom. Oh, he might give us things and all of that, but, but that's not his wisdom. And so these people ask wrongly, you see. They ask to spend it, if you will, on their own passions. Now, just a caution for us. When, when James is talking about doubting, he's not really talking about kind of the, the normal kind of doubting that we all sort of have. I mean, let's face it. Uh, we go through periods of, of doubt. And, and, and even when we pray, don't we wonder, is this really going to happen? And how is this really going to happen in, in all of that? There's a lot of sympathy for that sort of general or normal, if you will, kind of doubting throughout the scripture. You might remember that Abraham is, is, is called a great man of faith. A man who believed and was unwavering when God told him that he would have a child, Romans chapter 4. But yet we know the story of Abraham. We know that he wasn't all that unwavering in his faith. We know that, that he actually laughed when the angels of the Lord said, oh, you're going to have a child. That doesn't sound to be terribly faithful. But yet, he persevered in faith, even in the midst of all of that. Well, you remember... The man who brought his son to Jesus on one occasion. and His son was mute because of a spirit that was attacking him. And uh, he said to Jesus, if, if, if you're willing, you can make him well. Jesus said, if I'm willing, uh, of course I'm willing. Believe. And the man said, oh, I believe, but help my unbelief. We know that kind of sort of doubt. I, I believe, I, I think, pretty much. Yes, I believe. But if I don't believe enough, please help me, uh, just in case. I don't believe, right? We understand that. Or Thomas, we remember, 
great struggle for him. All the other disciples, I've seen Jesus, and we believe he's alive. Thomas says, I don't know. Jesus kindly, graciously, compassionately came to him and said, here I am, touch me. Don't doubt. Right? And even as we read the little letter, Jude, we call it. Jude writes, be merciful to those who doubt. We get what he means. But we also get what James means here. We understand this. We know double-mindedness. We know when we, when we really want what we want. And we know when we pray, we don't necessarily want God's wisdom. We want ours. You remember uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 8, there was this uh, man uh, named Simon. He was in Samaria, and he was a man of great renown, uh, so much that it's likely that they just simply called him great or the great one. Uh, he was a magician, and, uh, and uh, he was amazed people. Well, Philip, uh, the scripture tells us, went down to Samaria, preached the gospel. People heard it and believed. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet come. That's a whole different story. But the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come. But, but people believed. And, and then there were signs and wonders and so forth performed. And Simon was amazed. And then Peter and John came. And when Peter and John came, uh, they prayed for people. And the Holy Spirit came on them. And we don't know exactly how, but in, in a very visible, dramatic kind of way. And Simon saw that. And he said to, to, um, to Peter, uh, he said... Uh, uh, give me this power also, offering them money, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now he said that, not because he wanted to continue on the great things that God was doing, but because he wanted to look great in the eyes of other people. That was really his intention. Uh, He says, "I, I can get from God so that I can be great again in the eyes of people. Uh, He was asking wrongly. And of course, Peter nails him. He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Uh, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Uh, And uh, Simon answered him, pray for me that nothing, (laughs) nothing you've said will come upon me. Still not sure where his heart was when he made that request. But we get it. We understand that, that often when we pray, we want God to simply make our life easy. That's for me anyway. That he'll take away all these things just so I can have a pleasant time. I remember once, a number of years ago, I was out and about. And I was being introduced at a conference. And, and uh, uh, you know, they introduce people the way they introduce people. And... Oftentimes, sometimes they have a question for the speaker. And the question for me was, what's your passion in life? I hate those kinds of questions. And uh, you're supposed to say Jesus and then get on with your talk. Uh, so I said, my passion is life, life is to live a comfortable, easy life. And the poor guy that asked me that question almost died. Going, oh no, what have we... And I said, no, I know that's wrong. I'm just saying. I just, that's just my passion. I know that. I want to live a nice... Easy life, 78 degrees, sunny, mostly, uh, you know, it's just a really nice, comfortable life. <sighs> Sadly, that's my passion. Uh, and when I pray, I often find myself praying prayers that will get me there in this nice, 
quiet, easy life. And so I will not receive the wisdom of the Lord when that is my prayer. It's not that God won't give me wisdom. He's shouting, be compassionate to others, Bill. Be kind. Right? Trust me. What I want is like a nice afternoon. That's, you see, in this way that we're to pray. One author put it like this. Our asking must coincide in the way in which God gives. He gives with singleness of intent. We must ask with singleness of intent. His singleness of intent is that we would really know and live his wisdom. My singleness of intent should be that I would really know and live his wisdom. That would be my desire, even as, even as I pray. So you see, if we don't ask in faith, but are double-minded, we end up like the foolish man. And the story that Jesus told, I read it last Sunday, you know it, you've sung it as a kid, your kids sing this. That the foolish man built his house upon the sand. When the rains came and the, when the rains fell and the winds blew, the foolish man would find himself patching his roof, closing his windows. None of that would help. Because the problem was his house was on sand. And that's what we find ourselves doing so very often. We pray that the roof doesn't leak or we pray that... But it's the problem of the foundation. Do we really want what God wants for our lives and for the world? Do we really desire his glory? So Ecclesiastes summed it up. Fear God and obey his commandments. In Westminster, our shorter catechism, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is, know the joy that comes from living a life that reflects God. His wisdom is glorify me, reflect me, be patient, be kind, be compassionate, be gentle, be joyful, be peaceable in the midst of this trial. That will strengthen your faith. You'll see the goodness of the Lord in the midst of that in your life. And you'll find yourself to be like the man who built his house on the rock. The wisdom of God. So when the rains fell and the winds blew, he could deal with the damage. Because the house wasn't going anywhere. Because it was on a firm foundation. So you say, well, what if if I'm more double-minded than not? What if I'm more doubting than not? Well, James goes on in chapter 4, and he says to them, well, remember this, that verse 6, God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to the Lord. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, it is. Confess it. Repent. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is to say, confess your 
double-mindedness and ask God to help you. Psalm 86 and verse 11. As a prayer, I would suggest that you write down and pray often. Again, as we said, this wisdom of the psalmist of David as he lives his life under God in the midst of the world that he finds to be filled and riddled with evil. And how does he live? He writes, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, verse 1, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O God, O Lord, for to you all day do I cry. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations have, uh, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then this is the prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, that I may fear your name. Make it single, not double. Unite it. Don't have me going two ways. Bunyan, John Bunyan, in his story, Pilgrim's Progress, had a wonderfully named character. The name of the character was Mr. Facing Both Ways. Don't you feel like that sometimes? I know what God wants. Mm, But I know what I want. I know what would please him. But I know what would please me. And they're not the same. Teach me your way, O Lord. That I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So that I may ask in faith, for wisdom, not doubting, not being double-minded. So I'll grow up. I won't be tossed around. I'll be stable, firm, steadfast. Let's pray. Father, for all of us, I pray. That that would be true. Unite within each of us our hearts. Take, Father, away our double-mindedness and even our doubting that we may trust you and trust you alone, knowing that when we go through difficulties that you have an intention and your purpose to grow us up, to mature us. That our faith will be tried and will be purified. And thus, we can reckon it, count it, consider it joy. And when we ask for wisdom, unite our heart so that we're asking you for your wisdom that we may apply it and live it out. Please, I pray, that be true. I pray it for those in our congregation who are presently finding themselves in good circumstances. 
they would not be fooled by those good circumstances and trust in them, but rather give you thanks and trust in you. And for those who are going through difficulties, that they may trust in you and navigate this trial in godliness. Father, we're grateful that you've called us to be a church. We pray that even as we pray for our church, for our growth, for our maturity, that we're praying it so that you would receive glory and not so that others would look to us and think, oh, look at that church. But rather when they would look at us, that they would see what you've done and glorify you, not us. Father, grant us grace. Enable us to fear you that we may know your wisdom. And this I pray in Jesus' name.